Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon, Peter. Great to be here again for our latest radio show. <laughs> the Red Hot Radio Show. And the Red Hot issue, I think, there's probably two, but the, uh, the weekend, of course, uh, Bill Shorten must be you know, really eyeing off the keys to the lodge. Well, poor Albo, right? You've got Albo's... <laughs> yesterday's <he's>, hero. <laughs> yesterday's hero. I mean, no, no keys. I mean, I ha- won't tell you my story about Albo, Peter, mm. but... Uh, you should. Why not? It sounds, sounds interesting <laughs> already. I would just go back and skite about how... Uh, when I was standing to be the uh, president of the Students' Representative Council at Sydney University in right. 1981. So that's why you're my, a political animal. My opponent was a, a person named Anthony Albanese, yeah. and I won. Oh, really? <laughs> you, so he's always been a bridesmaid, He's eh? been a bridesmaid. Then, but so, Paul, did you ever want to do politics? You know, young I age. thought about it for a couple of years, Peter, then realised that there were more interesting things <laughs> in life than politics. Yeah. I couldn't stand to be a politician. No. I just... I just think the thought of having to be a suck up to all those people and go to electric functions, and even before you get to go to electric functions, you'll have to entertain and, and be nice and charming to all the pre-selectors. Mm. I mean, I just, the whole horror of it, Peter. Yeah, I also think, Paul, the thing I would have found hard, because I've been occasionally asked if I'd be interested, and I just said, I just can't lie like that. And, and, and I, I know they wouldn't say they don't lie, but they have to. Sometimes when the party's view is this and they have a separate view, they have to toe the party line, which is a nice way of saying they have to lie to themselves in many they ways. They do. I mean, if you were parachuted into a nice position which led to the Cabinet, mm. great. But to go through all the legwork of the years of being a party hack, yeah. having to go through pre-selection and then being a uh, you know, the hack MP and... All the rest of it, I mean... Tough stuff. Tough stuff. But it does prove that you would cope with the lying because you you, you just don't like sucking up to people. (laughs) But I I can't do both. But, Paul, so let's talk about, you know, uh, what this really means for the election because people people might be saying, well, why is Peter worrying about politics? But Bill Shorten is coming with a substantially different economic agenda, which will have economic implications on people's hip pockets and it will have business implications as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, he's a, many people have said it perhaps one of the, the least business-friendly PMs mm. or potential PMs we've had for many years. So yeah. this, uh, look, you can put the politics to one side, but there's no doubt the markets, uh, if Bill Shorten was to be elected, would take a very dim view. Yeah. Uh, and that's because obviously they're worried about you know, the general sort of business environment because Bill's not does, doesn't support necessarily lower taxes and come out with some quite business unfriendly policies. Yep. Um, but also some of his policies around things like uh, uh, the d- discount or capital gains tax, the proposal around negative gearing, the proposal around dividend imputation, mm. the idea about capping uh, health insurance premiums at two percent. There's a lot of companies that could get caught up in a in a sort of a a Bill Shorten sort of wake yeah. uh, in a negative sense uh, were he to be elected. So this is something that's going to happen, or at least we, I guess he's got the, the bookies would be saying there's more chance of it happening mm. today than there was perhaps last Friday. 
Yep. Uh, and so the market should be a little concerned t- this morning. Yep. Or so, today, I should say. So we'll talk to Malcolm McCarris yep. about that. And Malcolm is one of the, I guess, the legends of political analysis in this country. And we'll see what he thinks Kim Bill win the next election. And also then we'll end up with Andrew Mayne, uh, who, who wrote a story around the fact that Westpac is no longer going to be in self-managed super fund lending. Uh, now, this also comes at a time when we've seen the Royal Commission, which is pretty well inspired by Bill Shorten again, mm. has really bashed the banks. And we, I want to look at also how will we be affected by the Royal Commission's impact on the banks? Because I know a lot of people are finding it hard to get money now. And if you combine both Bill Shorten's policies on capital gains negative gearing and Bill Shorten's implications on the Royal Commission and bank lending, we could actually have a housing crisis, which I'm not expecting at this point in time. Well, I mean, that's right, Peter. So there are a lot of potential sort of negatives. And the other thing we know, uh, of course, is that whenever you're in this sort of cycle of a lead-up to election, that can actually be quite bad for oh, markets. Yeah. Markets don't like uncertainty. So I guess that, that uh, we should ask Malcolm this, whether there's any chance for an early election. I mean, I don't think there is. But, you know, we could be in sort of a pre-election cycle now for nine months. You know, we should ask him what date he expects. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's going to be a bit of a negative on the market overall. Markets don't like uncertainty and yep. they don't like that sort of period leading up to the election. Okay, so without any further ado, let's cross to Malcolm McCurris. Malcolm, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Peter. Now, Malcolm, were you surprised at the outcome of the, uh, the Super Saturday by-elections? No, I wasn't because I predicted every every by-election result correctly. Mm. And I began by my article on the Switzer website on the 31st of May in which I predicted every result correctly, including my statement on that website article that the Liberal Party had a 30% chance of winning Braddon and a 20% chance of winning Longman, from which I concluded that the Labor win in Braddon would appear to be less emphatic than in Longman, and that's exactly what has happened. So, Malcolm, so how come the media got so excited to believe that there was a chance that the coalition might pick up those seats? Well, I think there were two reasons. Firstly, the Labor spokespeople were brilliant at expectation management. Hmm. They promoted the view that they were fairly hopeful of winning Braddon, and terrified of losing Longman. They knew all along, they must have known all along, that Braddon was a more likely loss than Longman, for the very reasons I state in that article to which I've just referred. Mm. Braddon is a natural Liberal seat. It was solidly Liberal on the state vote earlier this year, solidly Liberal. It returned four Liberals out of five at the preceding state election and returned three out of five to Labour's two at the recent election. It was a solid Liberal majority at the state election. Therefore, Just NK had to raise the Labour vote quite substantially to win the seat at all. By contrast, the vote in Longman is a carbon copy of the state vote in the Queensland state election of November last year. Just NK, therefore, should be commended or congratulated far more heartily than than, uh, Susan Long. Susan Lamb, though I can understand why Susan Lamb wore a broader smile on election night than Justin Kay, because everyone was congratulating her because of the success of the Labour spin in pretending that she was in greater danger. Mm-hmm. So that's my take on it. And the other thing I think also is this, that people were fooled by the opinion polls. 
They should have known that single-seat opinion polls are rubbish. Some of the journalists did say that, by the way. They, in fact, some of them said it and yet took, took great notice of it. Uh, but then I think they were just being misled by the Labor spokespeople who traded on the ignorance of the, of the media people. And by trading on the ignorance of the media people, they scored a propaganda coup, in effect, by mm. making the results appear to be much more victorious for Labor than they really were. Really, all that, all that really happened was that the Labor Party retained those seats and um, the lady in um, Mayo retained her seat when it was entirely predictable that that was what would happen. In fact, we now have a pattern which is eight seats. I can tell you the eight seats, in fact. Wills in 1993, Lindsay in 1996, New England and Benelong in December 2017, and now Braddon, Fremantle, Longman and Mayo. That's eight seats at this Super Saturday election. In every one of these cases, the High Court disqualified the previous winner, kicked these people out of their offices, made them contest uh, elections under apparently disadvantageous circumstances. In all eight cases, the people had enough sense to understand what was going on, namely that the High Court was entirely to blame for creating this fiasco, otherwise known as the citizenship crisis. Malcolm, I was going to ask you about that because that was a point that uh, a couple of people were making this morning, at least the anecdotal feedback was that... uh, at least some electors said, look, we can't understand what we're voting this for. In fact, they, they, in anything, it worked to the, the advantage of the people who got kicked out and having to recontest it. Do you, put, you obviously put some, some faith in that, that, that line of argument. Well, I do, actually. In fact, I noticed that on election night, Gary Spence, the president of the LNP in Queensland, twice said something which I thought was the most sensible comment I saw on the night, which was... People should respect the results of previous general elections. Now, the proper way to respect the results were to say that in July 2016, all of Barnaby Joyce, John Alexander, Susan Lamb, Justine Kay, Rebecca Sharkey and Josh Wilson were elected to their seats uh, in a properly conducted genuine open election and they should not have been kicked out that's that's my view now i think people eventually understood that that was the reality well all that that is the way i interpret these results now other people can give their different interpretations if they like but i believe that's what happened now i was quite convinced in the case of benelong benelong you may remember was too close to call for about a fortnight Mm. i was one of the very few people willing to make a firm prediction. I made a firm prediction on the basis of this theory I have. Mm. Now, just as just as Ben Long results produced this very thing, the last minute on the day decision by the elector to respect the results of the previous general election. So I think that was an important part of the reason why these members were re-elected on Saturday. And I felt a significant amount of sympathy for them, by the way. I mean, they were kicked out of their offices. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malcolm? They, they were kicked out of their offices yeah. immediately. The High Court disqualified them. They were simply kicked out of their offices. They were expelled from the House of Representatives by the High Court, in effect. Yep, exactly. But, Malcolm, given what you've said then, 
has this been, does this say to you that Bill Shorten is any more likely to become Prime Minister today than he was on Friday? Well, he is perceived to be more likely, but in my view, he is not more likely. In my view, the likelihood of him becoming Prime Minister is exactly the likelihood I expressed in an article I had published on the website of the Switzer program back in April. Hmm. I still think he's likely to be Prime Minister, but yeah. he's no more likely, in my mind, to be Prime Minister than he was on Friday. And that's because the seats that were won were always going to be won, but they've managed the political expectations uh, and voter expectations, What I guess you're saying, pretty brilliantly. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's precisely what I'm saying. I think the Labor people were absolutely brilliant at the way they managed voter expectations. And by the way, I'm giving more detail on this in the article that I've sent to the Switzer website about an hour ago. Fantastic. Terrific. Um, just come back to your article back in early May, I think, when you talk about the likelihood of Bill Shorten. Now, since then, the, the polls have tightened a little bit. I mean, you might say it's not statistical, but news polls now, I think I had three or four, 51, 49s, and even the Fairfax Ipsos poll, which I think is a bit of a load of rubbish, it's gone down to 51.49 as well. So do you see, uh, you know, when we're talking about an election, I think you're talking about next year, I think. I was going to ask you about that. But crystal balling, I mean, uh, is the money, would you put your money on Bill Shorten right at the moment? Well, I would put my money on Shorten, but it's certainly winnable by Turnbull. I mean, Turnbull can win the election, and I'm predicting it'll be on the 18th of May next year. Mm -hmm. That's quite a few months for them, for the Liberal Party in particular, to learn from their mistakes. The mistake they made was to cause these by-elections to take place in the first place, for the same reason as the Labor Party made a mistake when they caused the New England and Bedlong by-elections to occur. These were mistakes made by the two machines. The Labor Party recovered from the mistakes they made in Benlong and and, um, New England. And I think there are several months ahead whereby the Liberal Party can recover from the mistakes they've made in respect of these by-elections. The mistake really being causing them to take place in the first... Mm. I mean, they should. these by-elections should never have taken place. So, but so anyway, to, they get... have taken place. These members are now confirmed. They're the properly elected members. They've been given an advantage, by the way. I mean, for example, I think Justine Kaye, has a better chance of winning Braddon at the general election next year than she would have had had this by-election never taken place. Mm. It sounds odd, but I actually believe that. I think Justine Kay was quite likely to be defeated in the election next year. She was quite likely to be defeated. Mm. Right. M- Malcolm, now, I... yep. Go on. she's likely to be re-elected. <laughs> yeah, but Malcolm, I'm intrigued. You said the 18th of May. That means they will be going after the budget. Or are, would they be likely to defer the budget to have the election and a budget after the election? Yes, that's what they'll do. So, so you don't have to have the budget on the second Tuesday in May. You can defer it when an election is sort of clashing up against it. You can do that. Look, there and is another possibility. Hmm. Yep. It's possible the election might be on the 23rd of February next year. Right. And, of course, just, just explain the timing of both the Victorian election and the New South Wales election next year. Well, the Victorian election is on the last Saturday in November this year, which Mm -hmm. I think is the 20th of November from memory. Uh, The New South Wales election is fixed for the 23rd of March. Now, those are fixed election dates. 
they've been known for years and years and years. And I think the 23rd of February might be a pretty good day for Turnbull to have his election. In fact, I would actually be inclined to advise him to have the election on the 23rd of February. Why? I think the warm weather would help him. I think it's sensible for him to have the election before the New South Wales state election. I think it's not a good idea to be to appear to be spinning your period in office out too long. Um, anyway, I'm sure he's thinking about those things. He has already said the election will be next year, so therefore it will be next year. What's the latest this, he can go, Malcolm? What's the very, well, very latest? Because his economy is improving and the budget deficit could be in surplus by the, the May budget. What's the latest he can go? The latest he can go effectively is the 18th of May okay. because although the House of Representatives could, strictly speaking, continue for another six months, yeah. the Senate election, the date of the Senate election, it cannot be later than 18th of May next year. Okay. Malcolm, you've been fantastically insightful. I know the listeners will love to read your, your next article, which will be appearing on our website um, very soon. Thanks for joining us again. Okay, that's my pleasure. That's Malcolm McCarris, arguably one of the best political and electoral analysts this country's ever seen. We'll go to that break now, and we'll be back in a moment. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. Okay, and we should always add at the end of that ad that uh, we are talking about our headline interest rate being exactly the same as the comparative rate because there are no fees that change the rates in between. So, Paul, it's time to uh, look at a few questions that have been sent to us. And one has come from uh, Jane via email, and she said, Paul, I have Kogan on my ComSec watch list. Uh, and noted a 10% fall today. That was the 25th of 7th, 18. Are you aware of the reason, as I would like to get into this game? Well, interesting that uh, Kogan's had a bit of pressure following a trading update last week. I mean, Kogan's done really well. Hmm. Uh, and like, there's a big, obviously, as we've seen in the US, any stocks that are priced for perfection and they have a little bit of a yeah. hint of It wasn't a bad report. It was just le- less yeah, than the market expected. It was, and it was, it, wasn't up, it was a trading update, so it wasn't a full report. Mm. Uh, writing in, in today's Switzer Super Report, uh, James Dunn named it as a contrarian play. Now, oh, really? The difference between a contrarian play and a value play is that uh, stocks, you know, value stocks are stocks that people say are below intrinsic yeah. value. In other words, they're a lot cheaper than what the, mm. all of the calculations suggest like they're really buy. worth. Mm. Sometimes value stocks can stay value stock for years. <laughs> sure. uh, contrarian plays are necessarily things that have had very fast share price drops and sometimes you're just looking for the rebound. Mm. Um, and James thought Kogan might be in that category. Uh, look, I, uh, I'm a bit wary about Kogan because uh, mm. people say they don't have a great job. I, I mean, look, sure, I think if you um, 
on the numbers, there's probably some upside, but I'm not sure I'd be sort of looking at that as my number one stock tip. You know what worried me, Paul, is that um, Kogan himself and one of his uh, directors sold a lot of shares. Yeah. Now, I, look, let's face it. I knew this guy when he was a nobody. He actually came on my show. He just started his, his um, business. He learned how to access um, cheap um, TVs from China, and he whacked the name Kogan on it. And he said, a lot of the TVs that you buy in the big department stores are exactly like that. He, he got a really good system going. And I watched him build his business up, and he's done probably better than what I, I expected. But the market is always suspicious when someone sells their shares. Now, let's face it, he would like to translate his success into money and that happens. But I think that that was a negative for his stock and people have watched him since then. And then along came the the um, the less than uh, impressive. It was okay, but it wasn't as impressive as the market was expecting and down the share price went. But yeah, I think James is right. It's a contrarian play. It's a contrarian play. I mean, interesting, the stock was only just over $2 back in August, went up to a high of $10. Gee. And now it's back to $5.10. So, look, I mean, people forget how much these things go up and yeah. then say, well, let's come off. Look, it's probably a little bit of value, but, again, this is a pretty niche business. Hmm. Uh and I'm with you, Peter. I, I have some sympathy for people that own, you know, most of their wealth is tied up in their company. Yeah. But when they do sell for whatever reason, you've <laughs> always just got to be a little wary, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, because like Don May um, sold yeah. shares in Domino's because he had a breakup with his wife. Yeah. And, and ever since he's done that, Domino's hasn't done well. There's other reasons, but that coincidence, uh, that coincidence is just not great. Anyway, um, next one. Uh, we've got oh, yeah. uh, okay. Paula. Yep. Yep. Paula on an email and she says, I've been told that I can transfer my residential property into my self-managed super fund by a super consultant. Oh, I'd say a not-so-super consultant. I believe this to be I, I, I incorrect. I think by the super fund consultant, right? <laughs> as far as... She, she says, I, I believe this to be incorrect as from all I've heard and read in Switzerland over the years. I know it's possible with a commercial property, but just what just want to clarify that you cannot transfer a residential rental property currently held in your own name into your self-managed super fund. Paula, you are 100% correct and your super fund consultant is 100% wrong, wrong. and you should fire mm. him or her. Yeah. Right? This is the, one of the most basic things. There's a, it's actually against the law and, uh, and it's called the acquisition of assets from related parties. To be, and, to be precise. And there are, specifically, you cannot acquire assets from related parties except about four categories. And one of those categories is commercial property, mm. and that's got to pass a test for business use only. And the reason for that was because of the history of self-managed super funds really goes back to sort of, you know, self-employed people. Farmers, like really. Farmers and yeah. others. Mm. And, of course, most of their assets were tied up in their own business property. And yep. so there's a special exemption. But apart from these three or four categories, and it does include shares at market value, you're not allowed to. So it's not a question of the law says you can do this. The law says you can't buy assets from a related party, and you're a related party. And so Superfund Consult is absolutely wrong. Fire him or her now. Yeah, and thankfully you've been sticking with Switzerland over these years, Paul, and you're a very informed investor. I just can't believe someone could get that wrong. No, that's so basic. Maybe, maybe the super consultant needs to listen to us more often, Paul. We should, we should get his or her name and send them a little invitation to listen to his radio podcast. All right. Uh, Liz via email. With all the talk 
on interest rates and bond proxies, which I'll get you to explain to our audience what a bond proxy is, at this stage of the cycle, would you generally see as an appropriate investment allocation to REITs for a moderately conservative self-managed super fund just entering pension phase? Mm. Well, look, um, I think if you're moderately conservative, you're going to have something like about uh, 30 or 40% in growth assets and 60% in income assets. Now, REITs, or that's residential, uh, real, oh, sorry, real estate investment trust, property trust, mm. they're technically classified as a growth asset, mm. but they are in terms of volatility, in the very lower category of, of, uh, of growth assets. And they sp- pay a steady income. And they pay a steady income. But uh, look, so I guess if you had you know, more than 10 or 20% in, in REITs, I'd be a little concerned. Yeah. Um, they are obviously very sensitive to interest rates, and that's because, and, and you mentioned the phrase bond proxy. Well, I mean, because particularly things like commercial property uh, – a lot of people invest in commercial property largely for the income return and a little bit of capital appreciation. So they tend to be priced, they go up in price when interest rates go down because they become more attractive and they go down in price or they fall in price when interest rates go up. And that's why we mean by sort of like a bond proxy because they tend to, there's a bit of a correlation with the bond market. And what we've been seeing in the last couple of years is that not in Australia, but but bond yields in the United States have been going up. And so the, the 10-year government bond there is now around about 3%. It got down to less than 2% uh, in the, uh, when the Federal Reserve was just pumping money and buying all these bonds back. And now, of course, it's not doing that anymore. And there's quite a bit of fear that uh, bond yields in the United States will go up further and that will have some impact on Australian bond yields. And so we'll start in due course to see a higher interest rates in Australia. So some of the so-called bond proxy stocks, things like some of the REITs or, re- or real estate investment trusts, stocks perhaps like Transurban or Sydney Airport, perhaps some of the infrastructure stocks, uh, they could also get less effect, they'll become slightly less attractive if interest mm. rates go up. And so. I guess, Paul, if the market should crash sometime in the future, these could be affected because they are on the stock market, but it's likely they'll still, still keep paying the reasonable dividend, won't it? Yeah, and look, they have what's called a very low beta. So the, so beta sort of mentions, it sort of tracks, it's just a measure of how much the stock performs with the market. So mm. on, on an historical basis, if a stock's got a beta of one, if the market goes up 1%, then the stock price will go up 1%. If the market goes down 1%, the market will go down 1%. Now, that doesn't... I mean, it happens mm. on every occasion, but over time, that's what happens. Mm. And uh, things like uh, retail investment trusts or REITs, they have a beta of much closer, something like around about a half. So yeah. they're not as, they don't go up as much, mm. they don't go down as much, and so they'll tend to be less volatile in a, in a falling market. But uh, You said retail, but you meant real estate. I, I meant resident. Yeah, I mean, you have trouble with the RE bit, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I have trouble with the yeah, RE. I've, been, yeah. I've said that twice now. Yeah, Good yeah. pickup. Okay, so. next question. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm listening to you. Next question. This comes from Thomas, who attended my speech at the Melbourne Property Buyer Expo. And he sent this question in. He said, hi, Peter. Thanks for your talk at the Melbourne Buyer Expo. Really enjoyed it. Very good judge, this Thomas. Uh, curious about your PE trick, something to do with 20 and PE equaling 5% or something. I've got a basic understanding of PE. If, if you could give me an example of the above, how would your trick 
might apply that would help me understand it. So Paul, what I was basically saying, and you can you know, uh, add to this, was that if a, st- if a stock has a PE of 20, well, if you want to try and convert that to a percentage, historically I would divide 20 into 100 and that would give me 5%. So you could equate a PE of 20 to a return of 5%. Is that a fair call? Yeah, that, that's a, that's, a rough that's, rule of that's thumb. A, that's a rough rule of thumb because PE, of course, stands for price earnings. Yeah. So if a, if a stock is priced at a dollar mm. and earns five cents a year, yeah. so you buy a share for a dollar and it earns five cents, that's how much the company makes in profit on mm. a per share basis, mm. right? a dollar divided by five is 20, mm. or 100 cents divided by five cents is 20, that gives you a price earnings of 20. Yeah. So if you said... Uh, you know, a P of 20, mm. you could say it's going to take, uh, it's, it's like 5%. It's mm. going to take, you know. And so if it's 33, yeah. it'd be like around 3.3%. That's, that's, that's spot on. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, and the reason why I brought it up, Paul, was in the old days, once you got a P around 20, you start to look carefully at the company to think, do, you, do I want to stay in here? Particularly if term deposits were around 5 or 6%. Because, a, a, a company share is more risky than a term deposit of 5 or 6%. And often we would see people starting to get out of stocks when they got to 20, particularly above 20, but around 20, the question might be asked. And so if money flows out of the stock market because the collective PE of the market, say, got to 20, then it could be the time, getting closer to a time when the market might sell off. But because interest rates are so low, my argument is term deposits are around 3, well, maybe... The PE has to get to 25 or 30 or something before people start saying, oh, I've got to sell stocks and get into term deposits. And that's a great point, Peter, because you do see lots of uh, people who get a bit bearish about markets. They dig up charts and mm. say the PE of the market is, uh, mm. is, you know, the United States is at 16 or 17, and historically that's really high. And every time we've seen a PE of 16 or 17, it, yeah. means, Peaceville. it means that the world's about to explode just around the corner. Yeah. But what you've been pointing out is that interest rates on those other occasions, they didn't have interest rates, Fed fund rates of in the, you know, as low as they even are today. Mm. They were much higher. Oh, 4 and, or 5%. And so we've been in a really unusual situation since the GFC where interest rates have been so low that you can make a case that PEs can be a lot higher. Yeah. But uh, that cycle's changing a little bit, of course, because the US Federal Reserve is raising interest rates uh, and other economies, they're not quite following, but certainly I think the, the, the downward move of interest rates is over, and most people say that interest rates across most economies are going to go higher yeah. over the next three to five years. Yeah, okay. So th- there are these little tricks. They don't always work out perfectly, but historically they have been fairly fairly good rules of thumb. Look, let's just call the break here, Paul, because we, we want to bring Andrew Main in after the break. Andrew wrote an interesting story around Westpac no longer wanting to be in the, the business of lending to self-managed super funds for property. And I just think it's a, it's a backwash effect of the Royal Commission. And there are a lot of little effects that people out there need to know that are coming down the, the pike, which may well affect the way they can get money from a, a financial institution. Absolutely, Peter. I think the Royal Commission, the impact of the Royal Commission is still not yet fully appreciated in terms of mm. what it might mean to people just looking to borrow money, mm. Potentially what it might mean to the super system. There could be all sorts of uh, 
you know, both good and potentially negative consequences of, uh, yeah. of, of some of the work it's doing. Yeah, and I think Adele Ferguson's uh, story around should there be a million-dollar cap on a self-managed super fund before you can actually open one up is kind of like a, another side effect of all these question marks over financial institutions and what they're prepared to accept uh, because of the Royal Commission. We'll be back with you just after this break. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. So stick with Switzer and get rich! Okay, so welcome back to The Switzer Show, and I'm going to be interviewing now an old mate of mine from the Australian newspaper in the old days, but now a um, very, very star, very much star writer on the switzer.com.au website, Andrew Main. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Peter. Now, last time you wrote something for us, you shone the, the spotlight on the fact that Westpac is no longer interested in uh, making loans to self-managed super fund people for property. What's going on there, mate? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of there's a couple of strands to this. One of them is that uh, self-managed super funds the only sorry the only way you can borrow in a self-managed super fund uh, is uh, you, sorry I'll start again. The only way you can increase your balance in a self-managed super fund in a hurry other than by contributing is by borrowing. And borrowing is largely used to buy real estate. And um, the problem that that Westpac's tripped over is that I believe they discovered that there weren't that many borrowers. And what's more, a lot of the borrowers were fairly heavily heavily leveraged already. Um, I, I think what What's really been going on is that there's been some spruikers at work uh, pushing property transactions, pushing investment property, often, most often in places like the Gold Coast, pushing uh, that notion to blue-collar workers in places like Victoria, who are always uh, captivated by the notion of, uh, of, of getting warm in the winter. And I think that's, that's really what's been going on, because... Um, one of the quirks of all of this is that real estate is not classified as a financial product. So it's one of those loopholes whereby the spruikers can can invite uh, these innocent victims up to uh, up to Queensland, uh, offering them a free flight, and they think that's great. And then they get to get to look at a unit, and they they look at the view, and they see, uh, and they say, "Well, this is nice," and then. Um, you know, they talk price with the spruikers, and they don't really know what the what the going rate is for one of these units. And it's fair to say that they might quite possibly be ripped off. Not only that, but they get lured off to having having agreed to buy the unit. They're then in, encouraged to uh, basically reverse the unit into a self-managed super fund, and that. 
to me and to many other people, breaks the fundamental rule of self-managed super funds, which is that there's a lack of diversification. I mean, if you've got an ordinary super account, you're diversified in, in dozens of ways via the fund you're in. But if you've got a self-managed super fund and the only asset is a deposit on a unit on the Gold Coast, which may or may not go up in value, you know, you're a bit of a risk to the bank. So I believe that, coming back to what you're saying about Westpac, uh, they they took one look at it and decided that, A, it's not very popular with the regulators to be uh, to be lending money to self-managed super funds for buying property, and B, it's not necessarily very good risk. So do you think it's more a question of risk management from Westpac's point of view, or are they getting sort of a ready for the Royal Commission and saying, look, we want to get out of, just look like we're sort of thinking very carefully about our lending just so that we, uh, yeah. you know, we're sort of trying to tone down perhaps some of the uh, uh, more risky parts of their business. Yeah, and they, they might feel, well, Andrew, that they're I, accessories. I they're yep. accessories after the fact because they provide the fund, but they're still an accessory to the, the shady deals that you've been talking about. Yes, well, exactly. I mean, there is the problem out there in public land that if a bank lends money to somebody who goes bung, then to a great extent, the bank gets blamed. Now, I realize that that, uh, in some cases the banks are to blame, but I'd also turn around and say that in many cases the the banks are are less to blame. However, in the case of self-managed super funds, if anything goes wrong, if somebody, for instance, buys buys a unit for 600,000 and then discovers six months later that everybody else is paying 550 and that so they go oh i'm going to get out of here and they sell it for 550 they're down fifty thousand dollars on their superannuation you know it's it's really really not a good look mm-hmm. but um yeah the paul to come back to your um, your observation i think the banks are probably getting ready for a bit of a toweling in the royal commission as though they haven't had one already uh it's not it's not hugely prevalent. I don't have the numbers in front of me, um, but it's not really a big part of SMSF. So I'd, su- I'd suggest that borrowing in property doesn't represent more than around about 3% of self-managed super I think you're funds. probably right. I've seen numbers around that, that level, Paul. Yeah, I think that's right, Andrew. I mean, so the Royal Commission next week moves on to superannuation. And I think they've yeah. lined up uh, both industry and uh, retail funds and a few of the regulators. Uh, any yep. sort of insights as to what we might see out of that, and more, perhaps more importantly, what that might mean for superannuants? Well, that's that's a very that's a very good question. I think what the government wants is they want to see the industry funds given a bit of, given a bit of a knocking around, because so far it's been the what's called the for profit funds, mm-hmm. which are so bank owned plus AMP that have been taking most of the heat. Um, because if you may, if you remember, the government didn't really want the Royal Commission to take place, and I, like many people, thought it didn't need to take place, and I've been proved emphatically wrong. Hang on, hang on, can we, re- Andrew Main, admitting to being wrong? This is a, a significant uh, moment in the history of journalism. Oh, thank you, very, thank you very much, Peter. Now, I, I'm, I'm not wrong often, but when I am, it's with a fairly big thud. <laughs> but uh, you know, what I what I wanted to say, Lord Cobber, what I wanted to say is that I understand that the Royal Bank Royal Commission really wants to is expected to give the industry funds a bit of a toweling because 
there, there is a suggestion that some of the industry funds are taking money out of the, sorry, some of the unions are taking money out of the industry funds uh, that are related to them. Now, I don't know if that's a true allegation. And if it is a true allegation, it obviously needs investigating. Because the, if you remember, with superannuation, there was something called the sole purpose test. Yep. And the rule of pulled superannuation is everything that is done uh, by the managers of of the super of that superannuation, particularly in the industry funds, but also the also the uh, bank owned funds, has to be for the benefit of the of the account holder. And if it turns out that money is being taken from from the pool of money in in an industry fund and um, and being given to a union, that's a problem. Mm. But I would stress that we don't know that's happened. And the unions and the uh, industry funds will turn around and say, "Look, if we've done that, it's as nothing compared to the amount of money that's been that's been taken from the uh, from the account holders in fees uh, by the for-profit um, superannuation managers." So I think we can look forward to a fairly significant jelly wrestle there, <laughs> um, whether it turns into. Uh, anything, anything really dramatic? I don't know, but I mean, we all know that the banks are, uh, are are very much on the defensive. I went along last week uh, in Melbourne to the Financial Services Council um, annual conference, now called a summit, and uh, the general mood there was uh, definitely one of uh, of defensiveness because uh, the, the Financial Services Council covers the bank-owned and the AMP owned uh, for profit superannuation rather than the industry funds mm. and they're they're very very much feeling under the hammer uh, Andrew, how much the, do you think the uh, the royal commission might get into the issue of fees and performance and that perhaps really could reflect badly on some of the retail owned funds well uh, I've, I've got to say paul that's a very interesting one mm. uh i mean i do feel i'm sure you feel as well that the big the big point isn't so much fees as net returns mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, but that that means that if you've got a, an indifferently performing uh, retail fund that's also got high fees, you're you're being uh, you're being done over both ways. And um, I'm sure it wouldn't be beyond the wit of this royal commission, which has been very sharp in in its focus so far, to uh, to identify some of the culprits there in terms of low net returns. I'm not. Uh, I don't, again, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it is generally believed that the uh, that some the, the biggest number of low performers in terms of net returns is going to be bank owned and AM, and possibly some AMP funds as well. Yeah, exactly right. All right, mate. Well, thanks for joining us, and um, I look forward to your next wonderful article on Switzer.com.au. Well, I, I, I hope I've given up. I haven't given too much away because I'm, I'm writing an article tomorrow for Wednesday, so we shall see. Okay, thank you very much, gentlemen. Thanks, Andrew. That's Andrew Main, and as I say, he, he now writes for Switzer.com.au. I'm going to look forward to reading his article on Wednesday, Peter, because he's got he's called a lot of this stuff pretty right, mm. and uh, I think there's a lot to come out of the Royal Commission. And one thing we might talk in future weeks, we sort of alluded to it up front, but. Uh, you know, it could get rather hard to borrow money, uh, yeah. and that, that could have some impacts yet on our, both our property market and, and also just the economy. So. Yeah. Uh, Paul, I think that that's one thing a future Prime Minister Bill Shorten has to be very yeah. careful about, because we know the housing market's coming off the boil, 
and there are parallels with Kevin Rudd and the mining boom. Mm. Remember, he got stuck into the miners at the wrong stage. Like if, if Labor had got stuck into the miners on the upswing, it would have been okay. But to lay into them when the boom was coming off the boil, you've got to be very, very careful. So it's going to be interesting to see whether you know, the policies that Bill Shorten's promising to implement, if they do come to, um, to force one day, it could be a really serious economic impact at a time when I think the economy is on the way up. Anyway, Paul, that's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. And um, I've got anything else smart to say, but thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. <laughs>